Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Dr. Leanne Woolery has a very unique story that definitely demonstrates breaking through the green ceiling. She has had an unconventional path into the environmental field. She started off as an artist working in community. She has designed and facilitated arts programming, such as co-leading a young teen moms group, telling their stories of migration from reservation to urban settings, using the arts at the American Indian Health Center in Chicago, which we talk about in this episode. Much of our conversation focuses on art-based perceptual ecology, which is an art-based field research method to study ecological change, which Leanne pioneered, thus breaking a green ceiling. It's a fascinating approach, which she describes as working in the confluence of art and science. Her research focuses on knowing changes in our environment, issues pertinent to ecological sustainability through art-based research methodologies that work in concert with Western scientific paradigm. We talk about some of the activities she implements as part of her art-based methodology, which are really interesting and nothing like I've ever heard of. Her work is really fascinating and groundbreaking because her methods really allow the observer of nature and nature to directly connect with each other, where the observer records every single change throughout the day and does so by tapping into the creative side of the observer. We not only talk about observing changes of plants in the Sonoran Desert, where she works primarily, we also talk about observing and recording bird songs using art. This is what interdisciplinary and intersectionality is all about. Being able to make connections in all areas of study and life to better understand and be in harmony with nature. Talking to Leanne really helped take me to another level of how I see myself in nature. I really think you would appreciate this conversation as well and maybe it'll inspire you to go out into your backyard or the closest park or just outside your house and observe nature. And if you feel like it, just draw what you see. It doesn't have to be perfect. The process really helps you meditate on nature, which really helps at the end of the day to center you. So I hope that you really get to take some great skills or ideas from this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you again, Leanne, for making time for the podcast. It's an absolute honor to have you and talk about, we talk about so many unique topics on this podcast, and it's great to be able to add your voice to it as well. I thought we could start off by you telling us a little bit about how you developed your passion for the natural environment. Okay. Well, and I thank you for having me, Sapna. I appreciate it. So as a young kid, I grew up in the Midwest and uh, about third grade, we moved from the city to the country on some land that my grandfather owned and raised a small herd of cattle. And I would say that's where my adventures outside really began, that I started developing this relationship with nature because we were very much free to roam, that we could spend time outside As kids, my siblings and I, my brother and sister and I all raised cattle each year with my grandfather through a 4-H program. So this opportunity to know animals 
both domestic and wild in that area was really spectacular. And that's probably where it started. Yeah, I read a paper that was linked on your website and there's a part where you're talking about how when you were observing nature as a child, there was sort of this magical element to it, which I think is so true for at least me as a child, trying to understand the magic of nature and how it worked and how water flowed and why it flowed in the direction that it did and how the winds worked. Could you tell us a little bit about your kind of process with the magic of nature and how you observed it? Yes. And I think listening to what you just described of your childhood, curiosity is a big part of many children's experiences, but not all I learned. And that curiosity for me was asking those similar questions. You know, as children, we don't have the means to process in our head necessarily what these things mean, like we do as an adult. But to me, one of the beauties of children in that time, if they have the opportunity to be outside, is it's magical. Yes, it's a way to describe it, but also that just have such amazing imaginations. And at that point, the construct, and particularly I grew up in the U.S., so Western constructs of thinking one way had not been included in my thinking yet as a young child, that I still believed that the trees, the animals, the plants talked to me. I was certainly talking with them. And I also, I think one of the differences as I was trying to articulate this before we talked was that I really saw the world differently than adults, certainly, but other kids, I learned that I saw pattern and color. I seem to have been more sensitive to light and sound and textures and shapes. And those things out in the natural world, I mean, I was growing up in a hardwood forest area near the Missouri River. So hills and rocks, trees, all of those were alive to me. And it was a safe place to be and a very comfortable place to explore childhood. And that became my friend, you know, being outside. Even today, I tell people that my best friend really is the outdoors. I can be outside at any time and be comfortable with the world because those same characters that I guess that I grew up with, different ecosystem, but same characters in the sense they're alive and wise. Yeah. It's so interesting that you would say that nature became your friend. And as you explained your relationship with nature, it reminded me of another conversation we had with another guest, Belinda Chin. She talked about how she would often find herself in woods that were nearby her neighborhood as a way to escape the bullying from her classmates just because she looked different from them. And she said the trees the rocks, they became her friends. She talked to them and they talked back to her. So I think it's so wonderful to be able to hear another similar, I guess, expression or experiences that another individual, very similar experiences that you've had with nature. Yes. And that's interesting. I actually listened to Belinda's interview with you. I met her when I lived in Seattle and worked Ah. in that area. She's done some great work out there. But in now day reading literature that talks about some of our environmental leaders, certainly in the areas of conservation and sustainability, their lives 
began in similar ways. You know, there's been research that shows that, yes, those people who really have come to love the environment as an adult started by having some opportunity as a child being able to be out in nature. And that love of nature is what really can make the difference, the opportunity to be there. And it doesn't have to be something grand like the expanse of land I might have had the opportunity to be on versus being in a suburban neighborhood where your cul-de-sac is your place of nature. That scale, I don't think matters. It's something deeper than that about the relationship that we build with other natural beings, non-human beings. Yeah. You describe nature very vividly with the colors that you saw and the light. And so over time, you have been able to combine art and science as a way to know the changes in our environment. So tell us about how art has played a role in your life. I would say that the primary role art has played in my life is being able to both frame and contextualize my world through my drawing, through my paintings. And also it helps me to find meaning and understand the world around me. As an adult, when I first moved to Chicago, it was just traumatic, both in a sense of the difference between coming from Midwest college town, going to the big urban city of Chicago. And I encountered a lot of experiences that were really traumatic. And the only way I could deal with those was through my art making. So it helped me to understand why some of these injustices were happening that I saw all around me, why some of the trauma that was being projected on me was happening. And I think over time, as I've been able to use my art making, addressing other issues, many of them environmental and social injustice issues, it's I can find understanding in some way by making art. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like art was therapeutic for you at that particular moment in your life. At that stage in my life, yes. And I was actually in an art therapy graduate program Mm. at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. That was my reason for being in Chicago. So I was very focused on, yes, looking at how art could be a healing methodology as well. Yeah. I moved on from that in my life, but yes, that was a certain time of life. Mm. Earlier on when we spoke, you talked about how you used art therapy when you're working with teenage women who had left the reservations and moved to Chicago, I believe? Yes, I was. I worked at the American Indian Health Center in Chicago. And the program that I'd been hired to co-create and run was working with young teen moms who had left their homelands, wherever that might be across the country, and had moved into the city to deal with issues of trying to find a job and for other reasons they had left home and their families. And the work we were doing, we were very focused on helping them both gain skills, just everyday skills about how do you make it in the world in urban setting like that with what child. But I was working with them on having a voice for their stories. You know, what was that reason that they 
migrated from whether it be a reservation or off the reservation, but to a setting where their resources were not available to them anymore, their families, their traditions, their cultural resources. And to be able to tell that story, a mom, why their children were important to them, why their stories needed to be told. And we created a quilt together. Each of the moms created their own patch of a larger quilt. And then they wanted to have a ceremony at the end of that year-long practice, and which we did. And it, it was a very beautiful experience for me. And I believe many of the women that were there, some of their stories were very painful for them and to be told or to be heard. But it was an opportunity to have a voice and both an audio voice, but also a visual voice in their quilt piece. Part of that idea of art is yeah. healing, can be healing. Yeah, truly it can. Yeah, that's such a beautiful story. Yeah, thank you. And what an opportunity to be able to help other people kind of process traumatic experiences in their life through art as a way of expressing themselves and processing whatever has happened in their lives. Mm -hmm. Yes, and a piece to that also is the idea of witnessing. So to have someone witness your story just an individual to witness your story sometimes has more impact than there isn't always a need to be heard by the millions, you know? Your story doesn't have to be heard by the millions. It can sometimes be one person that can have the impacts. It was an honor for me to be able to listen to their stories and be able to support them in recognizing how important their story is. Yeah, that's a really powerful story. And I hope that as a society, we're able to look to these more, quote unquote, non-traditional ways of healing, for sure. You mentioned that you've kind of moved away from art therapy over time, and now you're focusing more on integrating the, the appreciation for nature. So what makes art an ideal medium for better understanding and appreciating nature? Good question. So I look at that as humans, we're sensory data collectors. That's a term I use that we're constantly out there engaging in the natural world. So the air we breathe, our feet are making contact with the earth. You described as a child, you maybe were down in your mom's garden right there with the insects and the plants. And we're nourishing our bodies with water every day. So our engagement with the natural world is always there, whether we recognize it in our minds or not. And our mind is constantly processing what our body has experienced. But with that, a way to articulate what our body has experienced, what our mind is processing is through the art making. And if we look back historically over time, humans have been engaged in making art in some way as a way to describe what their sensory exploration has been in nature. So you think about cave paintings, pictographs, rock carvings, and then a next stage of art making where we have basketry or weaving or sculpture. All of those things have been humans' way of processing their experiences with nature in some kind of art form. So the making of art. And it's 
I think embedded in us as human beings to be able to do that, to have a way to communicate what those experiences are in nature. We can't go back and talk to the original artists that made the cave paintings, but we can certainly see that the imagery that's being shown visually is about the natural world, the hunting, the gathering, right. the celestial beings. It's all there. Thank you for explaining that and for articulating it. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Something that you said earlier on is that you're focusing your research more in the field these days. And so you explained that you take an interdisciplinary approach to ecological field research, and you've developed an interdisciplinary approach to conduct ecological field research called art-based perceptual ecology. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Thank you for asking that. It is a mouthful to say, and it's, I have to smile also in that I think of my eight-year challenge of trying to frame and find a name for this practice. So in the late 90s, when I started my doctoral studies, that's when I really formalized my ideas about how art can be a way of knowing nature. And I developed some methods and again, needing to give a name to it. I was in a interdisciplinary studies doctoral program. However, the focus being environmental studies, the cohort was very diverse. And most of the people in my cohort and in this program were strong science practitioners. And I was there for that reason, because I knew I had lots of support from the arts community. But in order to grow this idea, I needed to have support from the science community as well. So I break down the name art-based perceptual ecology in this way, that the art making provides frames of reference and context to our sensory experience in the landscape. The perceptual ecology is referring to the body as being the connection between self and the landscape. And ecology is in that word because it gives us a way to frame and think about what our senses have apprehended in that place. So thus, it's the arts helping us to connect our body with place, but always recognizing that I want to work in collaboration with scientists that are trained traditionally. So book science is as valuable as the wisdom of a tree and what it can offer me. So the methodology, I focus on pluralism or an expansive alternative language from numbers in that I include art, metaphor, and symbolism as part of what I'm working with in the art-based perceptual ecology. And it's really framed within the larger canon of qualitative research methods and art-based research methods. And Gratefully, in our world today, art-based research methodologies are gaining momentum where people are recognizing that this is a valuable way to study our world and add to the larger body of knowledge. So I make art in response to a research question, and then that art becomes the data in my research. I recognize alternative forms of representation. So those forms of representation being the data 
So many times in my work, I also use narrative and performance and poetry in addition to the drawing and painting. But the main thing is that the researcher is the instrument and I'm gaining firsthand knowledge of ecological systems, which is what I study through this embodied experience by engaging in the local habitat and making art there in response to a research question. And I've collaborated with participants, so co-participants, co-collaborators in my research. So in addition, they would be the instrument as well, because again, we're not using instrumentation as you would in Western science. In Western science, the process is objective science. So trying to keep the researcher out of that experimentation. Whereas with an art-based research, the researcher is very important as part of that process. Right. When you're describing Western science, it again reminded me of a conversation I was having with one of our guests. So there are two guests who do have a strong research background and they were talking about how research cannot be objective because the researcher has opinions and therefore research is subjective or they're the ones who are processing the information to their level of understanding. And so the research or the data will ultimately end up being subjective. So in their opinion, they were saying that research cannot be objective and it's okay if it's subjective. In fact, it should be more subjective because then they're coming from the perspective of our voices as people of color working in a specific area of study, whether it's archaeological research or whether it's ethnography, then they're bringing their own experiences as people of color into that research, which has historically excluded people of color in those particular subject areas of study. I guess that was just a comment. (laughs) I so strongly support the idea of art-based research methods because it has the opportunity to reach a much broader audience. Those voices who haven't been heard in the past have this opportunity to come and have a voice in this methodology. And I realize it's not for everyone, but it does certainly offer the opportunity to be heard in a way that hasn't been heard before. You may be asking the question, why the arts? How do the arts make a difference, lend a platform to unheard voices? How do the arts bring a broader audience to citizen and participatory science? Well, people learn differently. And some of the voices that have been marginalized in this country are people who learn best through multimodal learning styles or combinations of multiple formats. Multimodal learning refers to engaging a number of our senses in the learning process. So visual, auditory, tactile, and kinesthetic. Kinesthetic being those who learn best by doing. And research shows that the advantages gained through multimodal learning strategies include the ability to learn more quickly and at a deeper level. Unfortunately, The majority of public schools in the U.S. still support a monistic learning strategy. Creativity and the arts are valuable strategies for multimodal learning. 
And the Citizen Artist Platform combines the arts with experiential hands-on research in the field. Thus, we support multimodal learners, providing a platform for those voices who have not been heard previously in crowdsourced and participatory science. And in my work over time, I've had the incredible opportunity to work with some amazing young people of color, primarily in urban Chicago, but also in urban settings of Seattle. And children who had been left out of the larger conversations, children who had been marginalized and didn't have a voice. And one of the things that I experienced over and over was in this process of them being able to make the art they had a voice and could be heard. And I feel like that method of communicating, of being heard, can be of such value in the research process as well, that there's so many voices that have been left out. And they're co-creators in our world. So being able to be part of that process of knowledge construction at a global level is really important and especially today more than any time. And in the areas of environmental injustice, being able to hear all voices and as part of that knowledge construction of how we plan and move forward with this crazy world that we're in today is so important. And Those areas of tacit and explicit knowing. So what happens in that juxtaposition between what we know but may not be able to put a word to or what we know and may not be able to put a number to can be explained through art making. Think of dance as I think a great example of how people over time have been able to express what their experience is through dance as a form of art. For some of us, visual language, like myself, is I'm more able to visualize than to dance my responses. But certainly some people dance performances is more their methodology. But expressing oneself through this other form of communication beyond the numbers, we can still get to solutions. It's just a different path. And people who have not traditionally been those researchers historically. So people of color have not traditionally been the researchers in the field. However, art-based research methods can be a methodology for them to have that voice and be part of that larger field. Yes. It's just vital for the creation of new knowledge for bringing those two elements together. Yeah. Tacit and explicit ways of knowing. Yeah, it makes complete sense. It does. You know, you were remarking earlier about the shadow drawings that you saw on my website, which is one of the methods that I use within art-based research methodologies to study phenomena in the field. And in talking about giving voice, one of the things I do with the data is I give it a voice. I amplify it and give it artistic power. So once I take the shadow drawing, which is just a a basic outline when I'm in the field, I'm drawing a basic outline of the shadow while I'm in the field. I take that back into the studio 
and I amplify, I give artistic voice to those data by filling in the interior in those details of hatch marks because I'm reliving that experience in the field by re-engaging with that artwork again. And, and what that does, it becomes a very meditative process that works as a springboard. It opens me to a space that ideas germinate and new questions arise. And I'm responding to your earlier question, Thus, what's the difference between artistic methods and scientific methods, basically? So this is a process that comes about in artistic methods that I have not witnessed in scientific methods when studying ecological systems in the field. One thing I did forget to mention is that you do work in the Sonoran Desert. Most of your field work is in the desert in Arizona. And one of the techniques that we talked about in more detail was the shadow drawings. Are there any other techniques that you use to help folks observe changes in space and time as it relates to nature? Yes, there are. The exercises that I offer to people when they're in my workshops or classes is first to help them tune in to their sensory relationship with that place. So traditionally, people are more tuned into their visual, what their sight is of the world around them. And even more so in our current 21st century, visuals are the main way people process the world. So I try to get them out of that by helping them to translate various experiences through different sensory modalities. So as an example, we tune into the auditory experience of a place and I have them really focus on that for a while. But then we move and translate that experience into a visual language. So they're asking their brain to translate auditory experience to a visual experience. We make a map of the place visually, not focused on what's making the sounds, but focused on what those sounds might look like if they were turned into a 3D image. And then we map that by really focusing on where is that sound in this ecosystem. So thinking about things like rhythm, volume, tone, density, and they make a mark in response to those words. So a mark of volume, as an example, a thin mark on the page would represent very soft volume, whereas a very loud volume of the Gila woodpecker in the Saguaro cactus, you know, might have a very thick mark to it. And then once they've mapped that, sitting in silence during that time, trying to only focus on that sound world around them, then we look at everyone's map and, and are able to have a discussion about how people's perceptions of the world are so different and yet so same. So their maps may be very identical, even though they were all sitting in different directions in that space, not talking to each other, not looking at each other's maps until they finish. That would be an example. One of the things I was impressed by early in life in my art studies were the wave maps created by Marshall Island canoeist. These are historical in that they are actual physically 
created maps, the ones I've seen, or maybe 12 by 12, using reeds as a way to show the 3D topography of a wave in a particular place in the ocean. And they would hand these 3D maps to each other to take out on their canoe travels as a way. So in touching that tactile experience that is embedded in the body, as they touched that wave, the brain would translate, this is what that wave's going to be experienced as when I get to this place in the ocean. And that idea of how our brains can translate sensory experiences always impressed me. So I use that as a foundation of some of the exercises I'm teaching others. Yeah. And so when you're helping folks who take your classes to observe these changes in nature using various forms of art, what are you hoping would change in them? Well, there is an ethical component I guess I would say that by practicing these art-based research methods in the field, that the participants are going to come to know the place in which they live at another level, a deeper level than they previously experienced. And by achieving this multidimensional sense of place that may contribute to a deep ethic of caring about the environment that they may not have experienced before, And the goal, the hope is that this is producing a new generation of good stewards who will act to conserve and protect the places that we love. There's very much an emotional, a visceral connection. Some people call it a heartfelt connection that can happen when you're engaged in nature. But when it's a facilitated experience of being in nature, it often leads to a very emotional, heartfelt experience. And I've heard these stories from so many different people, not only that I've worked with closely, but from others who are in the field of environmental studies. And when you love something, you want to protect it. You've been educated about it. You gain an emotion toward it. You want to protect it. And that's the goal of any of the work I'm doing, that we're really creating a new generation of good stewards who will act to conserve and protect this world that we live in. And I wanted to talk to you about something that you mentioned earlier on is engaging with people from underrepresented groups through a recent initiative. I mean, you've been doing that over kind of like the legacy of your work over time. But most recently, you've been working on this charge called the Citizen Art. And you're using a participatory approach to include underrepresented groups in art making, I mean, in better understanding the natural environment through art making. Tell us about it. (laughs) All right. Thank you. So it's called Citizen Artist, and it's a new crowdsourced science opportunity. I employ art-based research methods, and I offer a mobile technology platform. So the idea is to empower citizens who might not otherwise participate in crowdsource science to get involved with the potential of positively transforming our current environmental problems. The goal is to get citizens outside and involve them in environmental science research. And yes, you're right, especially those populations who have been overlooked, like we talked about before in traditional ways of research, and those who also would not participate necessarily in crowdsourced science, which is a fairly new area of science research. So I engage broad audiences 
And it's a very accessible platform. So the mobile technology platform is using a cell phone. Similar platforms like iNaturalist or eBird or platforms such as that. So it's very intuitive when you're working on it. But the idea is that I would be training, teaching participants through the art-based research methods to study ecological change. And the idea is that we use the arts in the same method I was describing earlier. We collaborate with scientists. So we're working on a similar research question in the field, but we are developing our research through these methodologies of drawing and painting, using that as the form of representation, the data to respond to the research question. And one of the things instrumental in this background development beyond the point that, as you described, I mean, it's been my life's work bringing these art-based research methods to a broader audience but that the belief Joseph Boyce was an artist in the 60s and beyond his revolutionary idea was that all citizens have the potential to creatively transform society. And that's what I'm working with, this idea of citizen artist project. So we just launched it this week. I'm participating in the Ecological Society of America Conference, which I'm a member of that organization, which is primarily Western science-based. However, there's a very fantastic group within that organization called Traditional Ecological Knowledge Group, which is part of the larger ESA organization. And these are Indigenous people that are working in the field of science and ecological sciences to study, but to bring their traditional methods of how they look at the world and how they study these issues. So your gentleman that was on, sorry, I'm not remembering his name about fire ecology. Yeah, Bill Tripp. Bill Tripp. He's an excellent example of using traditional ecological knowledge. Mm -hmm. So we're launching, we being me, launching this week as my presentations at ESA conference focused on citizen artists. I've been presenting at these meetings, gosh, since 2005, trying to bring across this idea of art-based research methods as a way to study ecological systems, being probably one of the first people to bring that idea forward at these kind of meetings. And now we've gained, I'm sitting on a panel with 10 other artists slash researchers this session also that are talking about their various ways they use the arts in their ecological research. So it's wonderful to see the group is growing, uh, those who are practicing and open to this ideology. But being able to be on your podcast this week also, or whenever it's going to be presented, is also helping me to launch this process and it will soon be up on a website. And I'm developing a course now that would teach these methods. And then we'll be collaborating with other non-for-profits around my immediate community and hopefully globally at a future time where we are training citizens to participate in this platform. Again, with the idea that we're going to reach a broader audience of population, that their voices haven't been heard previously in scientific research. 
Wow, that's such a great initiative and congratulations on launching it this week. That's quite a feat there. (laughs) Well, thank you. I could see that the citizen artist being useful, especially in communities where there are environmental injustices taking place, communities that are forced to live alongside harmful, polluting industries, and even communities that don't have green spaces. So one of the things that I work on in my field of study is green infrastructure. And as we're working with water utilities and cities to encourage creation of green stormwater infrastructure to help reduce flooding in areas of neighborhoods that are susceptible to flooding, low-income neighborhoods, which tend to be Black and Indigenous and people of color, those particular neighborhoods could use greener infrastructure, which is like green gardens, urban canopy coverage, green streets. So I feel like that's something that citizen artists could, I guess, tap into or just be used as an empowering tool for these communities where they envision the greenery in their neighborhoods. So yeah, that was just a random thought. Yes, no, that you're absolutely on the right track of where I'm hoping to go with this. And this is kind of a culminating project for me of what my work has been and where I see our world today. So a couple of things that comment makes me think of is that one of the projects I developed several years ago when I was in Chicago working with the Friends of the Chicago River and also the organization I was leading called the Peach Club. We were working with young children in inner city neighborhoods in Chicago and helping them to use the arts as a way to build confidence and have a way of expressing their voice about their life. So the White Dress Project was a project that I had developed where we were looking at the rights to clean water and how research could help change policy. And these young children, they were 11 to, I don't know, 15 years old at that point, were learning how to use biological monitoring systems to study what kind of organisms were living in their water, which was the Chicago River, was where their water was coming from. And at that time, it was not very clean at all. And so we were down at the stream doing stream monitoring. But then we were using this metaphor and symbolism of a small infant dress, which they hand sewed. Uh, You think of something the size of an infant. And then we ceremoniously dipped that into the Chicago River, using it metaphorically as a litmus test. So the color of the fabric was going to obviously change once it dipped into that water source. Yeah. (laughs) But again, that embodied experience of historically people retrieved their water straight from rivers, both drinking, washing, food source, everything from the river system. And the idea that that knowledge is embedded in human beings was a way for that physical experience to bring some of that possible tacit memory back. But then we were able to take all of that information and share it in a public community forum and exhibition, both the dresses and the biological monitoring data from that river. They were able to tell their story about what that experience was. So 
just feeding off of what you just described, it's absolutely something I have done in the past and I want to move forward in a more formalized way with this, you know, to be able to work with the cities that you describe, which there, it's not just cities. Oh my gosh, it's in rural communities as well where environmental injustice happens right there alongside social injustice. They can't be separated. They are so linked together that the people living in those spaces are the marginalized communities in this world. So I hope to, yes, and be able to have the opportunity to work with communities like that, individuals like that through the Citizen Artist Project, the long-term goals. Could we change policy? That would be absolutely fabulous. And that would certainly be something we would be working towards. Yeah. All right. So we are going into our lightning round here. And this is where we have a series of four questions and just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? I think a film that I've watched in the last year, it's called Human Flow. It's by the Chinese artist and activist Ai Weiwei. And he captures the global refugee crisis, which he describes as the greatest human displacement since World War II. And I'm thinking now that film may have come out in 2018, Mm -hmm. so it doesn't even capture what our current crisis is. It was very well done as a film, but it was just overwhelming to think about the millions of people that are living as a refugee, completely displaced from their home, their place, their family, their culture, their foods, everything that they may have grown up with in their lifetime. They're just completely displaced. It's unfathomable to me to be able to understand how we can live in a world that treats people like that. And yet we are. So it it just, it brought so many contradictions to my own personal thinking and belief systems. And I think everyone should be made to watch that film. What's the best piece of advice you received? It could be that you've given. You are a knowledge holder. (laughs) Someone did give me this advice early on, but I have turned around and shared it with many. That is to practice loving kindness to yourself and to others. Life is really short and you can't take back those moments when you weren't practicing loving kindness. They're just gone forever. So to practice it and try to be aware of that in your daily life is, I think, very important. It offers a softness to the world that isn't there. Very important and not communicated enough. (laughs) What is your superpower? That one stumped me for a long time as I was listening to your (laughs) podcast and I was like, what the heck does that mean? I think this comes from someone, a friend, a good friend that said this to me, that I see the goodness in others and help them to recognizing it and bring it forward. That's a superpower. Okay. I think it's something that is true to you. It's something that you go back to as in whenever you need to calibrate. And the purpose of that question is also to really humanize the guest because our guests come or represent communities that have been historically marginalized. And so there's a tendency within our society to either 
see those people as a group of people and not as individuals and to stereotype. So the idea here is that as an individual, you do have something unique that you bring to this world. Oh, that's helpful. So I would add to mine then that as a woman, I recognize that I have a voice Mm -hmm. and I make sure it's heard. Yeah. So that whose voices are not heard, I can help to give volume to. Yeah. That you could amplify. (laughs) I can amplify. I spend a lot of time at the dictionary (laughs) now online because like I said, words are just not my friend. So I'm always having to look up words to make sure, do they really say what I think I'm saying before I say it on paper Yeah, or in something like this? But amplify was just, it just hit me as, God, what a great term to use about, because I've had people ask me many times, so if you're altering this data and are you've created it in the field in response to your research question, your art making, and then you take it in the studio and you just turn into an artist as if that's something negative, which then I have to think through how do I respond to that? Well, yes, I am an artist and a researcher. So that's very important and of value in my process, but also amplifying the art and giving it artistic power, which that's not my term. It comes straight out of the foundational books of art-based research methodologies, but giving it artistic power amplifies it even more. And those are all very positive things. Yes. How can we follow you on your journey? Oh, well, thank you. So two ways, I guess my website ecoartexpeditions.com is where you can find the most information about what I've done and what I'm currently doing. As I said, Citizen Artist will have its own website here very soon, but information about it can also be found on ecoartexpeditions.com. And then for those that are interested in my research, I'm on ResearchGate, which is a way people can find some of my research. Awesome. And finally, is there anything else that you would like to add before we we pause our conversation here? No, I think I've said a lot. (laughs) Yes, I had five more pages of notes, but I think the beauty of how you facilitate your podcast is you really listen to people and you bring out points that should be brought out and articulated. And so the conversation becomes organic and we move on to another subject. And you having that overall view of being able to tie everything together because you know what you're doing. I think I do. (laughs) Makes it an interesting conversation. And those five pages of notes will just stay there as a process in which I went through to be able to talk with you. Sure, of course. And (laughs) thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate it. I I'm definitely a work in progress and I always appreciate the constructive feedback. As far as those five pages, like you said, <laughs> you can always reuse that material. <laughs> yes, isn't that beautiful? Yeah, and I think it's always good to just revisit what we do as human beings in our like expertise mm-hmm. or just to reflect on those, what we do. So I hope though that you feel like you've kind of fully represented yourself in this conversation. But if you feel like there's more that you need to share, then we can definitely add that to our show notes or even do a second interview. Oh, you're very kind. 
you would subject yourself to that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm very intrigued. I think you do an excellent job and you've just brought so many voices out there for the rest of the world to hear. I'm excited to be able to share your podcast with others now that I know about you and that I get to be on there. So hopefully together we'll bring even more people to your podcast. Yes. In response to adding more, I agree. I think this has been a very self-reflective experience, which I thank you for because I used to do that a lot and I haven't done that in a while. Other things that you impressed upon me is your whiteboard on the wall, which (laughs) I was thinking, (laughs) of course, she started a new business. This is really important. I used to have those big giant post-it notes, you know, that you'd put on the wall and mark on that used to be my major process. And I somehow have downsized in physical space and I don't have those and I'm really missing them. So you've inspired me to put them back up. Yeah, do it. You've got to see it it in written form (laughs) to actually meditate on it and act on it if needed. That's a good approach. Well, thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Samna, for including me. And I love this conversation. If you do have other questions, feel free to ask. We'll do. I don't have to do another podcast. I would love to keep having conversation with you. Indeed, indeed. And good luck with your podcast. Thank you. Breaking Green Feelings. What a great idea. Thank you. I appreciate it. And your support and many others is really helping kind of give voices and carry those voices forward and hopefully for many years to come so yeah thank you again hey all thanks for listening to breaking green ceilings if you'd like to hear more episodes with change making environmentalists head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast you can find me online on instagram and twitter And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.